those of you who are staying here, we're going to be jumping to a variety of passages, and I don't have one in particular. Hebrews 12 is where we're going to be closest to in just a few moments. Um, actually, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let's start there. 1 Corinthians 14. If you need notes, raise your hand. They'll walk through the auditorium, give you some of those notes, and they'll check with you in the balcony as well, Pat. Um, let me just help our minds to wake up on such a fresh morning. Here we go. Name something you'd hate to find swimming in your tub. A rat? Snake? Mouse? A dog? What'd you say? Soap? You said a stranger. That's, that's good. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a, absolutely. Fish, alligator, dog, spiders, cockroach, snake, and rat and mouse was number one. Name a place you might still need to use coins. Where? Laundromat. Parking meter. Car wash. That's a good one. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, to get the, the, if you don't find a free tire machine, you know, for the air. Yeah. Any place else you can think of? Here's what they said. Kids allowance. And I'm thinking, no kid is satisfied with coins anymore. Okay, under the pillow for a tooth. Pay phone. By the way, do they still have pay phones? Really? Okay, okay. Uh, parking meter, bus or subway, laundromat, number one was vending machines. Name a part of your body that you say, ache. Backache. No, no a part, not the whole thing. Okay, a part. <laughs> you might say, blank ache. Knee, back. You've guys covered every part of the body already. Here's what they said. Earache, knee ache, muscle ache, toothache, backache, stomach ache, headache. Name something that comes out of the clouds. By the way, we're going to say Jesus, but this isn't a, this is a secular survey, so it's not up there. Rain, Rain snow, sleet, lightning. The sun. Okay, here's what they got. Superman. Okay. Blimps. Okay, I haven't seen many of them. But planes, birds, lightning, thunder, snow, and number one is... Yeah, there you go. You're so smart. Name something that makes working from home appealing. <laughs> what is this? Refrigerator? Somebody say refrigerator? Okay. Okay. Anything else besides better? <laughs> Other things people might be to find appealing working at home? Staying in bed? Wait, you're supposed to be working at home. What's that? Okay. No commuting. That's going to be up there. No commuting. You don't have to dress do I have to dress up? Oh, okay. Okay. Here's where they go. No babysitter. Unlimited bathroom breaks. They avoid the boss. They avoid the co-workers. They see their family more. There's no commute. Flexible hours. And number one, not dress up. There you go. See? Actually, I changed it. Part, they had in parentheses, not dress. 
is what they had on there as well. So here we want to dress up scripture. And so what we're doing is we're doing a study and figuring out, okay, uh, so we don't avoid things. We're trying to go over some truths, some questions uh, that we've been talking about, that we've answered up to this point. Last Sunday morning, we, uh, we jumped to a different one. But here's one we left off last week. And I, it was interesting doing here about three weeks ago, doing some research into this one. And uh, it frequently comes up that churches today who say that ladies shouldn't be the preacher because of gender, that the thought is they're bigoted, they're prejudiced. And uh, so the argument goes, and some of the arguments that are given for why it's okay for lady preachers is, one, the Bible does indicate that there are ladies in spiritual leadership. Can you think of any people, Old New Testament, who were in spiritual leadership positions? Okay. Ruth is going to be, well, her story's there. Deborah. Deborah is going to be there, one of the judges. She's definitely in leadership. Think of uh, anybody with Moses? Miriam. Miriam is going to come up. Anybody in the New Testament they can think of? Uh, There are some daughters of Philip that are called what? Anybody remember? They're called prophetesses, okay, that that are brought up. And then the argument goes, there is no difference. There's a comment in Galatians, there's no difference between male and female, Jew, Gentile, free, bond, and so there should be no differences here. Um, then there's the argument that uh, what prohibitions were in, and there's an admission that there was some limited prohibitions in the New Testament, that they were based on culture. They were not based upon any other reason. But culture at that time, uh, in ancient days, the ladies usually weren't in leadership. And then there's this argument that lady preachers can be very effective. And I asked this question at the very end. Can ladies, do you think they could be effective in pastoring at times? Oh, I would think so. I think they could definitely minister to some people in a very unique way. Could some ladies out-preach some men? Yeah, there's no doubt. There's people with different talents and gifts. And so our response to that, my response to that, is uh, we are one of those archaic churches that says ladies can be used in multiple ministries and ought to be used and are gifted, except for there's a couple restricted offices, and one of those is the pastor. The reason that we say that is uh, based on, not on results. You could have a lot of effective people. In, In fact, let me throw this out. Could you have somebody who could be very effective preaching, but they could be a, they could be an absolute disaster character wise? How, how, do we know of people yes. you know, that have been just tremendous in communication, but their lives have been disasters? Okay, we've seen that in the media ministries and things of that sort. And so you can't go by results alone. You just never can. Um, I, and we ought not to be doing that. Uh, the Bible teaches that ladies do have limitations in ministries. There's one verse that says there's no difference between male and female how would you respond to that when it comes to working in ministry? Does that verse mean there's no difference in ministry? I gave you the rest of the verse before. There's no difference between male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, or free. So everybody should be equal and all distinctions should be dropped? Yes, no? 
you can't go there on a cultural basis. Because if you say that, then what should be done with rich people's money? It should be, it should be everybody should share it. When he's talking about there's no difference between male, female, Jew, Gentile, bond or free, what's he talking about? Is he talking about positions? Okay, what's somebody's... Okay, salvation is the same for all. Their walk with the Lord is the same for all. Okay, that's the context of that passage. It's not about in social, in social areas. You know, it's not talking about a socialism or communistic approach, that there should be no wealthy people, everybody should be the same. It's not talking about uh, that idea that there is no distinctions within the home. You know, because that's exactly what the problem was in 1 Corinthians, is the ladies were thinking, now that I'm saved, I don't have to follow my husband anymore. And does he address that in 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll, get, we'll show you in just a minute. So you have to be careful. Um, here were, are the distinctive comments, okay, when it comes to pastors and deacons. It says, if any male, very clearly in 1 Timothy 3, which is a requirement passage, qualification passage for pastors. If any male desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. In your English translations, it probably reads, if any man. Don't be confused. That says, okay, any person. That is not the verb, uh, the word there. The word used there is very clearly, if any male. Not mankind, but Andres, a male. The same thing happens in the next verse. He says, it talks about the pastor's qualifications. The husband of one wife. It's very clear. We're not talking about females by that phrase. Not in Bible days, anyway. And so, so the idea has got to be male. Then we go to 1 Timothy 2. And then we go to the idea, women learn in silence that they are not to teach or usurp authority within the church. That I, context of that passage is how you operate within the church body. And as he says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, that we want to be functional in the church, we go on and he makes that comment that they are not supposed to be. And in the original it says not to teach or usurp authority, not to be the teacher, the teacher. It's articular, uh, noun. What does that indicate when it says the teacher? Who are we pointing to? Okay. Anybody who teaches? Who is the teacher in, in a local church? Okay, it's the pastor. It's the pastor. It's the one who's, who goes on, he talks about the qualifications, apt to teach, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so then when we get into the deacons, same thing. He uses that same idea, the husband of one wife. And let's jump over to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. The argument that is made is cultural. And yet you and I, if we're going to follow scriptures... It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that it's not based on culture. It's based on creation order. Where he says in 1 Corinthians 11, and I remind you of this context. It is where ladies are feeling in the local church that they have a newfound freedom, which they did through Christianity. And so all of a sudden they're starting to usurp their authority, even in this context, with as I understand the context and application, where they were not doing the outward signs of that culture, of the wearing of the veil, which would indicate that they're married woman and that they're following their husband. They were based Basically, casting off the veil. Well, the ladies who didn't wear veils in public typically 
where those who, with that idea that they are, they are not under somebody, and they were, quite frankly, in the, in, the, in the Greek society, the ones who weren't wearing veil, they were advertising on the street that they were selling their body. This was their calling card, that you could pick them out. That's cultural from Corinth, from Ephesus, things of that sort that we know historically. And so the ladies taking off their veil and saying, I'm just as good as a man, what were they doing in a public sense? They were dishonoring themselves, their husbands, and Jesus Christ. Okay, so they were ruining their testimony. So he writes to them and he says, now wait a minute, let's put this in order. If you start with verse, uh, verse, uh, jump down to verse 3. And he says, okay, there is leadership, there is orderliness, there is submission. It's not sinful. Because what illustration does he use to indicate that submission and orderliness is appropriate? It's not a, it's not a diminishing, demeaning thing. He uses the illustration of the Trinity. Verse 3. Do you see it? Jesus, who's the head of Jesus Christ? What does it say in the text? Okay. Is Jesus less than God? Not, not, in, not in, um, in essence. Not in power. But in an orderliness. God, the Son, the Spirit. They're not, we're not diminishing any one of them or demeaning them, but within the Godhead, there's orderliness. And then he makes the comment, he says, who is the head of the woman? Man. Who's the head of the man? Christ, okay? And then he goes on, he talks about this, and he makes these comments, every man that prays or prophesies with his head covered, he dishonors. The woman that prays, prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head or her husband. And he goes on, and in this context... He's going to be making this comment that he says uh, to the ladies that the reason that we do this is down in verse 9. Neither was the man... Let's do verse 8. For the man is not created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Does that mean the woman is of no value? Absolutely not. But why did God create a lady? Because Adam needed a... Helper or helpmate. And so creation order indicates that this is the way things were to function in homes. Does that mean the wife is not to be valued? Does that diminish and say the wife has no contribution? Absolutely not. The wife is the queen of the household and should be, cre- should be treated as such. Highly valued, he talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He talks that you dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. And yet, in that relationship, who's the, who is to be the head of the home? Who is to set the standard of let's moving forward? It's the man. It's the man. It's the male. Okay? And, I'll, and you may not like it, but I'm going to give you a biblical illustration. What happened with the fall? Who took the leadership? The woman did in that time. And so what happens is Adam acquiesces, abdicates it, and it leads into an issue for all of mankind. Does that mean that ladies lead us into sin? That's not the point. That's not the the conclusion, but the conclusion is God has an orderliness. And he established even within the Trinity, and he says, I have it within the other really unique relationship, a husband and wife. Somebody has to be the 51% where the other one's the 49%. 
And so he talks about that, and he says, okay, that's even in a church setting. The men are to be the leaders. And I read in these articles that say these, this, as I was following through, that in churches, you know, if men don't provide leadership, then the ladies just have to. What's the problem there? What's that? The men letting them. The men not stepping up. The sinful problem is the men. Do I understand that maybe the ladies are going to have to you know, do more calling and things like that? I understand that part. But that doesn't mean just because somebody is not doing their part, we, we change God's program. And we change the restrictions, the requirements. What is interesting is you go a little bit further in some passages. And this one I wanted to touch on because this is a problem passage the way it sounds. And so about three weeks ago when I was preparing this, um, I was starting to do some research, and I read an article that I found that I'd never seen this argument before. The argument for the way that this passage is explained by this one Christian author is he says, okay, where it says, woman keeps silence in the church, he says, in the context, it's ladies who are berating their husband. And what he's saying is, ladies, stop tearing down your husband in the public ceremony worship service anymore. And my thought is, okay, why does he say that the ladies don't tear me down in public and he limits it to the church? What is, what is that leaving? If that's the interpretation, what does it allow for? Any other time you can rip me apart. Is that biblical? Yes, no? Okay, it wouldn't be. So, what does it mean ladies keep silence in the church? It is not permitted for them to speak. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. If we're going to take it to its extreme literal interpretation, what can't you do? You can't sing. Anything else? You can't teach Sunday school. You can't teach other ladies. You can't teach kids. If you're going to take that strict interpretation. And we look at that and go, wait a minute. If that strict interpretation is where we're at, then it, then it contradicts Titus 2. Where it says, older ladies teach the younger ladies. So then what does he mean by this? Okay. In the context, do you remember what's happening in the context of 1 Corinthians 14? What's that? It's talking about which gift in particular? Um, prophesying, but which is the problem gift? Tongues. Okay. And so he's talking about tongues, prophesying, giving interpretation. And if you understand the gifts, those gifts of, of tongues, interpretation, of prophesying, those are God giving direct communication and, and then giving it to the church. It is a form of how we got the Word of God originally when there was no written Word of God. Churches were getting direct messages. So all of a sudden, um, you might all of a sudden have the gift of prophesying. You get a special message from God. You stand up and share it with us. You get the gift of gifts, uh, the gift of tongues, excuse me, if there's Jews present. Okay, only in the New Testament did the tongues occur when Jews were present. You get the gift of tongues and you get up, but somebody's got to interpret. And so in the church service, he's restricting this gift of tongues because what was happening in first second in first Corinthians chapters twelve, thirteen, fourteen, what were people starting to do? They were just giving randomly getting up and speaking in tongues, and the service was becoming 
chaotic. In fact, he makes that comment. Um, somebody help me out where he says, if the unsaved come in. Um, yeah, it's chapter 14. Yeah, look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and everybody is speaking in tongues and, though, and there come in those that are unbelievers, will they not say, this is a crazy place. This is a crazy place. People are standing up, doing whatever. Nobody understands. People are just having these emotional reactions. And he's saying, that's not, God is an, uh, and he says it in this verse, God is a God of order. And so he makes that comment. He says, okay, we got to stop this. And he puts restrictions. No more than two or three in any service. They cannot speak anymore with these tongues unless, first of all, there's an interpreter. So if you're going to come and speak in tongues, we got to check this out even before the service happens to find out, does somebody understand what you're saying? And uh, by the way, tongues are not this ecstatic speech. The word means a dialect or a foreign language that they come in and it's not our dialect. It's like we're going to have in two weeks, we're going to have somebody come and speak in Ukrainian or in Russian. Won't that be interesting? People coming from the Ukraine and sharing with us with all that's going on. They're going to come, but they can't speak. What good does it do if the two Ukrainian pastors stand up here and preach to us on Sunday in two weeks? We were not, actually three weeks. We aren't going to understand. And we'll say, oh, that was cool service. But not a, one of our questions will be answered. We won't have any clue unless you speak Ukrainian or Russian. And, you know, that's going to leave me out. I'm just going to sit here and... Have you ever sat in a service where you don't understand? Well, that's probably, I shouldn't ask you that. You're, you're all going to do it. This morning, you're all going to go... You know, just harass me. So here, you know, those, that's the point of this text. In context, that's the point is ladies keep silence in the sense, I don't understand is keep silence, never sing. I don't understand, never teach. I understand it as you keep silence in regard to standing up and telling us, teaching us through the word of God. And you're going to be the teacher here in the assembly. And so with that in mind, we have that same thing. It doesn't contradict First Timothy. It means the same, that in the local church, who is to be the teacher? It is to be the pastor, and the pastor is to be a qualified male. And again, that does not mean, that does not mean, and, and people are going to walk away and hear and do whatever. That doesn't mean that ladies aren't valuable to the church. That doesn't mean ladies don't make contributions. It just means there's two offices. But there's plenty of other ministries. There's plenty of other opportunities. There's plenty of, of teaching that can be taking place. So I really find it indignant. I find it just absolutely demeaning to hear some preachers say that in our church, you know, the ladies, we just don't, we, don't, we have the men do all the, lead, all the stuff and we don't use any ladies. Are you kidding? If you don't use any ladies, what have you just given up? You've given up a large portion of your church. And in the Bible, how many, how many people here are gifted by the Spirit to do, give contribution? Every single one. Does that include ladies? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in a state of orderliness, okay, he says, this is the way I want you to function. And so we abide by that. But we do not believe, we do not think that ladies are inferior to men. Say amen on that, please. Okay, that's, there's just, there's, is there to be 
a demeaning that all ladies are lesser than men. No, no. And we had a young man years ago who just started walking around the auditorium, and he would walk up and he, said, he would say, yeah, you're a woman, you're supposed to be submissive to me. Some guy said that to you, Sandy. You know, I'm thinking that between you and Bob, you would have belted him. Okay? Bob would have. Bob would have. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, this guy had this mindset that all ladies are to be subservient to all men. Does the Bible teach that? No. Okay. And so in this, uh, in this idea, ladies, you know, great, contribute to the church. Just don't hold those two offices and you move on. And we talk about this one. Do you really believe in a hell? Okay. Did you hear a message lately on it? Okay, okay, you were awake last week. Okay, so let's do this one. Let's do this one. Since last Sunday, we spent Sunday morning talking about that one. Let's do this easy topic. Why does God allow evil to exist? Okay, when I say evil, we're talking about, you know, Satan. We're talking about bad events. We're talking about catastrophes. We're talking about holocausts. We're talking about genocide. Okay, here's the way it usually comes up. Often believers struggle with answering this question. At times, skeptics begin the questions with phrases like, if God is so loving, if God is so powerful, if God really cares, and then it goes on. Why does God, what is the, impl- the implication? He's not all powerful. He doesn't care. And so it's an impugning of God. So where we need to start with answering this question is we need to back up and say, wait a minute, we know this is biblically true. God is always loving. Yes? Does he always, is he always concerned about my happiness? Not my happiness. I I threw it out. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Is God concerned about our happiness at all times? Let me rephrase that. You as a parent... Is your goal to keep your kid always happy? Keep him miserable? <laughs> what do you want? What's your goal? Okay, to train them. Okay, to provide and train so that they become, yeah, mature, healthy, contributing adults. Okay, and from a Christian point of view, we want them to become godly adults. That's our goal. So does that mean at times you disturb their happiness? Yeah? Okay. You, you correct them. Do you withhold things from them? Okay. Which might be bad for them. Okay. Do you let them experience some difficulties? Okay. So you're teaching your toddler to walk. What do they do that's part of this learning process? They fall down. And you say, I will never let you fall down. Then what happens? Yeah, they never develop their balance. So when we say, you know, does God allow us to fall? Does God allow, you know, things to happen in our lives that might make us unhappy? The reality is he does. Why? Because he's a loving parent. He's a loving parent. Is God always holy? Does he ever lead us into temptation? No. Does, is God always all-powerful? 
Okay, so now we have to reconcile some of these thoughts and say, okay, God is above all evil, he is holy, he doesn't do it, yet we wrestle with some of the questions. Why did he allow evil to exist? Why doesn't he do something about it? What's your initial reaction when somebody says to you, why does God allow evil to exist? What's your initial response? Do you have a, a bibli- you know, an answer to that? Go ahead. Why wouldn't he? Okay. Um, can we jump to one passage that might help? John 15, where he purges us. For what reason? Remember, I am the vine, you are the branches. And I purge you, I cut away things. Why? To help us to grow so that we bear fruit and then more fruit and then much fruit. Okay, so in that sense, how else do you respond to this? Why does God allow evil to exist? It's a tough question. Go ahead, Don. You're getting to the heart of the matter. You're, you're taking us back to, to yeah. Did God initiate evil? Okay, he didn't. He didn't. Okay, let, let's, let's walk through some of this. Okay, let's make some observations from the Bible. Okay, number one observation, evil is a real problem. Do we have evil in the world today? Do you confront it at work? School? Do we confront it in politics? Okay, that got the bigger yes. Um, so, do, in, in the world right now, what are some things that you just look at and say, I don't know why it, why it happens? When you read the news and you hear, of, you hear of tragedies. Yes, no? Okay, you hear of... Okay, so, um, Thanksgiving time, Gary is doing fine, and all of a sudden, within a few days, they say he's got brain cancer. And this week he passed away. That's really fast. That's tragic. You know, here he is, a godly man. Tomorrow we're going to do a private funeral for him here. And it's like, why did that happen? Why did God allow that? If God was all-powerful... Okay. If God is all-powerful... Here's the way we approach it. If God is all-powerful, he will do whatever I think he should do. Whoa. Okay. Now that, that opens up Pandora's box. Because... Okay. You just... Who's to be the authority in situations? So it is a real problem. And by the way, to make to explain this to the satisfaction of everyone, we're not going to be able to. Not everybody's going to, because the gospel is hid to them that are, and who darkens their minds. Satan's blinding. So let's start for you and I saying, okay, we're going to come from a biblical approach. It is a real problem. We wish it weren't, but it's here. Number two. We don't always understand God's plans and purposes. For us to say, I can explain why God does whatever he does, I can't. Maybe you can, but I can't explain every situation. I can't explain, you know, all the deaths, the illnesses of loved ones. I can't. I don't know. I don't understand behind the purposes. I think I'm in decent company because one of the most godly men who ever walked the face of the earth kept on saying to God, why? I love you, I'll worship you, but why? Do you remember who we were talking about? Job. Job. And finally, at the very end, what does God say? 
Here's why. Does he explain to Job? Never does. He just says, Job, where were you when I created? Where, who, what did you do to keep the stars in space? How, what are you doing to keep all creation uh, moving as well as it is moving? What are you doing, Job? And the answer is, yeah, yeah. He, uh, here he's talking about certain things belong to the Lord. In Job, it's God is, God is way above us and understanding his ways. If God had created the world the way it is today, he would not be loving. Does, does that make any sense to you? Think it through. If God had created the world the way it is today, with all of its chaos, corruption, that would not have been an act of a loving God. Okay? Because is this the world that God created? What? This is a fallen world. What did God create? A perfect environment with all the incentives to have a perfect, peaceful, cooperative, harmonious creation. God, that's what God created. God didn't create... What we are living in today is not God's... What God... That sounds... You understand where I'm coming from. It is not what God intended creation to be. That was not his initial plan. Did he know it would go this way? Yes. Did he make provisions to compensate and to correct it? Yes, he did. But this is... What we have today is is an abnormality of what God created. This is not to be the norm. By the way, by, in comparison to all of eternity, is what the world is today the norm, the average? No. Okay, so we th- look at that. God is not evil, nor did he create evil. And typically when we think about creation, we think about things. Okay, this is an attitude. This is a thought. This is an action. Okay, and so God didn't create in man's mind, evil thoughts. God didn't create in Adam evil deeds. God didn't create in Satan. He didn't create a corrupt being. What did God create? Everyone that I just mentioned, what did God create those people as? Okay. He created them perfect, sinless, not all powerful, but sinless, with a free will. They had a choice. And you say, why would God give them a choice? And he did. He gave the choice. Satan, obey me or not. Adam, obey me or not. Why does he allow choice? Love is meaningless, meaningless without choice. There is no love. You're, if, if, if we are going to be without choice, then what might he, what, what, he might as well made robots. Okay. And so with the risk that he took, that's love. When God created, he made a world that had perfect harmony between everything physical. Were there tornadoes in the Garden of Eden? Were there hurricanes? Were there earthquakes? And the answer is no. No. Why does creation groan? Why does, what happened to creation? They were, it was cursed, and it was a result of sin entering and corrupting every facet. Not just people, but also creation itself. God did create a sinless realm of angels, 
But Satan and his followers chose to rebel and they became evil to the core. God did create a tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he warned men against it. That's like people will respond and say, well, he shouldn't have made the tree of knowledge. If he wouldn't have made it, they wouldn't have sinned. But they had to choose. There had, God said there had to be an, what are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? Right or wrong? And so that's the risk that he took. As a loving God, God created man with a free will, the choice to love God and obey him or, and others, or to obey and love God as well as other people. There was a choice made. With Satan's encouragement, Adam and Eve introduced evil into creation and mankind to follow by choosing to disobey God and to eat from the forbidden fruit. The evil that was introduced into all of creation came from Satan, who is an in, um, Um, temptation, but who affected all of people and all of of creation? Adam and Eve when they chose to sin. And we say, man, Adam and Eve are terrible. It isn't fair that there's evil in the world because of them. Wait a minute. What do you choose? Have you ever done evil to another person? Have you ever lied? Have you ever taken? Have you ever created a conflict with another person? Have you ever killed animals? And I'm not talking for food, but just for the sake of going out and killing something. Have you ever caused confusion or chaos? We're we're contributing to a generation after generation, and the worst part about it is we multiply it. On a national level, does it get worse and worse? On a social level, is it getting worse and worse? <clears throat> because it's just, it's just infiltrating. The evil and the corruption happening in creation and mankind now is a result of mankind's choices. When I say mankind, I'm starting with Adam, but I'm including our contributions, our choices as well. For instance... In a most intimate relationship, in your family unit, have you ever been the cause of conflict? Well, you're contributing then to this idea of evil conflict starting to operate even within your own home. As time goes by, things get worse and worse. We know that from Timothy, which says, in the latter days, how are things going to wax? Worse and worse. People have an amazing capacity for sin. What I mean by that is this. You read some of these stories and the atrocities. Let's go to World War II. It's more recent. The Great Generation. Can you believe what some of those people did to their captives? Can you, can you believe that people would do scientific research without regard to somebody else? How they would, how they would, and I, I don't want to be real graphic. Can you believe the stories that you read of what people underwent by the cruelty of individuals? And a lot of those individuals that were engaged in some of the cruelty, their response afterwards is, "We didn't. We never thought we would we would get that bad." Why did the Why did the society? Why did so many of the people who there? They knew there was these camps taking place, but they did nothing. 
right? Historically, yes. Why didn't they do anything? Who were they concerned about? Themselves. Okay? Now, if we were in that same spot, I'm not saying we would do any different. But what does that show you about people? What are we by nature? Yeah, we're sheep. We're selfish. We're selfish. And then we are, we are amazed by the atrocities that take place. We're amazed by the cruelty that people can, can you know, impose upon others. Just because we don't do that level of cruelty doesn't mean that we're not capable. And it doesn't mean that we don't do some forms. Okay. So none of us in this room have gone out and physically been brutal to some individuals. Can we be brutal verbally? Can parents, can they abuse their children verbally? Without any, without any bruises showing. Is that a form of evil? Yes or no? It is. It's on a different level, but can a husband or a wife tear down their partner verbally and be cruel? It didn't happen. What, my whole point is, how many people have a propensity to doing wrong? All of us, at different levels. And part of it is, what does our society contribute? What do we think we'll get away with? But we have an amazing capacity for evil. Evil about us should not cause people to question. And this is the irony that that I find in this whole discussion. Soon as we look at evil, and how evil society can be, who do we question? We question God. You know who should be questioned? People. You know, here's where the argument should be. The argument shouldn't be, why would a good God do that? The argument and the debate should be, how can you say people are innately good? How can you say that within us is just pure goodness? Look at mankind and what it can do. Look at what people can do to their loved ones. Look what we have done at times, at a much smaller scale. How we have talked about other people. How we may have been angry towards somebody. Look how we respond when we get cut off on the road. Okay? The, the, issue, the, the, the discussion shouldn't be question God. The discussion in churches should be, why are you teaching people are innately good? It's just, that's foolishness. That is just, it it makes no sense to me. And so we go a little bit further. We say this, God has and is doing something about evil. When people say, why doesn't God do something? What has God done? What has God done? Let's let's go all the way back to the very beginning. What did God do? There's a tree tree of knowledge of good and evil. What did he do? He warned them. Okay. Not only warned them, what else did he provide? everything, everything they needed. And what did he say? Just don't eat from one. Just one. But everything else that you want, I put you in a perfect environment. I've given you perfect harmony. I've given you companionship and you're going to propagate. I've made you and I want you to propagate. And all I ask is and tell you, just this one thing. 
This one thing. Don't, that's it. The rest is all yours. Amazing. Don't touch the wet paint. I don't want you to, you know, don't you, you, any of you who have done parenting, don't you cross that car, step on that carpet. Any of you have kids that do that? Did that? Okay. If you're going to have kids, it'll happen. Okay. Why is that? Because, okay. So what else has God done? Not only for me, what else has God done through history with evil? What else has he done? Okay. He's judged it. He's overcome it. Let, let, let me, let's go back to the flood. What verse do you have about the flood that God was trying to thwart and, and restrict evil? The thoughts and intents of man's heart were only evil continually. And my spirit... Do you remember the rest of it? Well, my spirit will not always strive with mankind. What does that tell you? What does that tell you about God? He'll let, but what did he do? I, I know he'll, he let them go, but what's it mean that my spirit will not always strive? Did he try to restrict evil with his spirit? Yes. To What's that? Okay. Yeah, even before then Noah's warning them. My point, though, is in that where my spirit will not always strive is, yes, God will say payday someday. But God, doesn't that tell you God tried to restrict evil? Through his spirit, okay, they didn't listen to the spirit, there's the judgment, and then what does he put in place in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood to restrict evil? He put something in place. Well, this is before that. This is after the flood, before uh, Babel. He said, if any man takes blood, by man shall his blood be shed. What is that the beginning of? Social, law, or government social order what is supposed to be involved with suppressing evil government government is not supposed to be ignoring evil or calling evil good government is for the purpose of punishing the evildoers and protecting the well-doers that's government's design by God. And God gave them authority, did he not? He even says in Romans 13, what does government have in their, in their he uses it in a literal slash figurative sense, what does a government have that shows they have authority and they can punish? He talks about the sword, the sword of the government. Okay, and so God established government. What else did God do to slow down evil? Anything else? Some of you have already alluded to it. What did Jesus do? Okay, he dies on the cross. By doing that, okay, when Jesus comes, did Jesus teach people to oppose evil? Yes or no? Okay, you are the blank and the blank. You're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And in fact, what you've been told is adultery. I'm telling you, even if a man thinks in his heart. What did Jesus just do with the standards? Okay, he's elevating it. 
If you think murder is bad, I'm telling you, if you even say raka in your heart, you are guilty of murder. So he's raising the standard. He's telling us how to treat one another. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, this is something that is totally, totally overlooked. Does God allow people the ability to learn from creation to find cures? Absolutely. Did God put into creation cures? Yes. And so God in all these areas sends Christ to overcome the evil one. And then he gives you tools. What are some of the tools you have to overcome evil? What do you have within you? Holy Spirit. What else do you have? You have the word of God. What else do you have? Okay, I have prayer, you have people. God's given you all kinds of tools to overcome evil so you can oppose it. Then number 12, we have to admit this. Satan and his hordes are still alive. Okay, they're still moving at this point. Just because evil happens, it doesn't mean God wants it to happen. Okay? That, that, that's a misconception. That's again saying, well, God makes everything happen. No, he doesn't. He's created, but there's allowed free choice. Let's do this one. God will put an end to evil one day soon. Can't be quick enough. Okay, but God will put an end. Evil, therefore, is temporary. We say this, all evil will eventually be completely eliminated. All of it. Who's going to do that? Not mankind. Not mankind. Who's the rescuer? So, okay, it's God himself. Let's take it a step further. If and when God ends evil... He will put an end to any who have not repented and cast them into hell. Any evil person that has not repented. He's putting an end to evil. That's why he says that there will be no evil to enter into heaven. None. None. Okay, because he's going to establish that perfect environment. No unforgiven person who has had their, their sinful nature forgiven and then eventually removed. None will be allowed. Those people end up in hell. So, if God put an end to evil today, what would that mean? He says, today is it. I'm going to stop all evil. Then a whole bunch of people are going to end up where? Okay, so why doesn't God do it? Okay, let's take it a step further. If and when God ends evil, he's going to put an end to anybody getting saved. So why doesn't he end evil? He's giving chance for people to get saved. He's giving a chance for people to get saved. Evil is temporary, but what about their souls? They're eternal. So God is trying to start, trying to give opportunity. In the meantime, God uses evil at times. Do you believe this? That God can turn evil into a good purpose? Does that ever happen? Yes, no? Joseph and his brothers. Anybody else come to mind? What about Jesus on the cross? Did men mean it for evil? Did it become, create good? Oh man, absolutely. So we'll talk, oh David numbering the people, we're going to see that this morning in a second. Number 18, what's the next comment? I don't know, that's yours. Okay? But those are just some feeble thoughts on why. Okay, evil is allowed. Now let's get more pointed, okay? Let, let's, let's remember our story. Okay, 
this story that we, we shared with you months and months ago. An atheistic barber who was talking to a pastor, the barber asked the pastor, if there is a loving God, how can he allow poverty, war, and suffering? How could such a loving God you know, send anyone to hell? And just then, this bum comes walking past the barbershop. The pastor says, you're a barber. You claim to be a really good barber. How can you allow that man to go about in the streets unshaven? The barber's response, he never gave me a chance. Why do people continue to do evil? They never gave God a chance. 